Hello, and welcome back to Extra Extra. This is your premium companion to the Morning Announcements podcast. I'm your host, Sammy Sage. Hello again, or just hello if this is your first time. If all you ever do is read the homepage of the New York Times or Twitter or your Facebook feed, keeping up with the news is probably boring, confusing, disjointed. So what I want to do here is make it make sense, make it fit together, kind of explain why things are happening. You know when a kid won't stop asking their parents why, like they just get an answer and then they'll be like, why? But why? But why? I personally feel like I may have gotten stuck on that setting, which is why I can't stop asking why about certain things. Maybe I should have called this the why. Then you guys could be the whys. And then we could do a theme song that's like, take on the who. Anyway, let me know what you think. And on to today's topic. I don't know about you, but sometimes I just can't help but wonder why a Supreme Court that's supposed to be impartial has gone so actively far right. And in a way that is not in any way reflective of Americans' greater values on so many topics. Obviously, abortion, same-sex marriage, access to drinkable water, to name a few. I know I'm not the only one wondering this. And sure, obviously, it is normal for conservative policies to prevail on certain issues, and history is like a pendulum and blah, blah, blah. But this is the first time that the court has been actively trying to take away rights that they have given. So in this episode, I want to explain why this is happening and what has gone on behind the scenes over the past several decades that resulted in us losing abortion rights and potentially more, though hopefully not. So our topic today is the Supreme Court and how hundreds of millions of dollars in anonymous dark money donations have paid for what we now have as the 6-3 conservative court. We all know the Sparknote causes. Mitch McConnell refused to confirm Merrick Garland after Antonin Scalia unexpectedly died in 2016, at the time coming in with what was a new level of audacity by refusing to confirm him because it was an election year, which was truly such a bullshit answer that he might as well have just blamed it on something like the high pollen count or that a mermaid had stolen his gavel. So we know that Trump got to fill that seat with Gorsuch and Justice Kennedy's questionably timed retirement Damn, I should have asked Senator Whitehouse about that. Hopefully another time. So Kennedy's questionably time retirement left a seat for Kavanaugh, and RBG's untimely death led to the confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett, which was shockingly in violation of Mitch McConnell's own election year confirmation unicorn policy. So that's pretty much our history of the Supreme Court from 2016 to 2020, according to TikTok. But those people didn't just trip and fall into their Supreme Court seat. To borrow a very tired analogy, the 6-3 supermajority is like the tip of an iceberg. No, the 6-3 supermajority is like looking at a bank balance without seeing the thousands of transactions that equaled out to that. Underneath the iceberg, or the sum of cash available to withdraw, is all the following. I kind of wish I had like an audio highlighter to highlight that this is an important part. Behind that 6-3 supermajority that we now have is $580 million 
thanks to half a century of strategic fundraising, a full-on legal structure that spans at least dozens of shell corporations and organizations, and a full-fledged network of faux legal scholarship that sort of mirrors legitimate legal academia, but is actually funded by a small group of billionaires and really only exists for the purpose of furthering their interest through court decisions at the expense of literally the rest of the planet. Here's Laura Ingram herself describing the way it all works publicly on her cable show before she was secure in the knowledge that Roe would be overturned. If we have six Republican appointees on this court, after all the money that's been raised, the Federalist Society, yeah. all these big fat cat dinners, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm pissed about this. If yeah. this court with six justices cannot do the right thing here, the constitutional thing, then I think it's time to do what Robert Bork said we should do, which is to circumscribe the jurisdiction of this court. And they want to blow it up. They will then then that's the way to change things. Finally, this is all what Senator Sheldon Whitehouse has dubbed the scheme. And the goal of the scheme is what he calls court capture. I interviewed Senator Whitehouse on the topic, and I think his answers will really enhance the episode, if only just so you don't have to listen to my voice all the way through. This topic is Senator Whitehouse's thing, if you will. He formerly served as a U.S. attorney and Rhode Island's attorney general, which is where he's from. And he's carved out something of a niche around the ways that corporate interests overtake the government under the public's radar. He has been warning about the dangerous effect of anonymous dark money donations on our court system for years at this point. And this issue has been on my mind since Amy Coney Barrett's nomination, when Senator Whitehouse used his questioning time to make a 30-minute presentation about what was then $250 million of dark money donations that had been poured into the court system, with the goal of achieving the conservative court appointments and court rulings that they wanted, which they now have. Since Barrett's confirmation, that dark money total has been revised upward of $580 million. So I had to start with asking Senator Whitehouse the obvious question. What defines dark money besides anonymity? I would say one intended to influence uh, the political system. Uh, two, uh, hiding the true donor. And three, run through a usually pre-existing array of uh, front groups set up for that purpose. Senator Whitehouse has spent the past year giving presentations on the Senate floor about the scheme. If you don't have access to the Senate floor, don't worry. He has released 17 different parts, which are all bingeable on YouTube. I binged them recently in preparation for this episode, as one does. And I have to say, they are definitely better than at least a mediocre Netflix documentary despite the whole production probably costing maybe $20 from the taxpayers. Also, he kind of gives me a little bit of like a senatorial Steve Martin vibe, in case anyone is looking to cast yet another movie about groups of white men engaged in corruption. And the Oscar goes to... Spotlight. Argo. 12 Years a Slave. Godfather. Godfather Part 2. No Country for Old Men. The Departed. <laughs> Like any effective corruption scheme, it was conceived well before it reached its goals, which was the 6-3 makeup of the court. The whole thing can really be traced back to the 1970s, but the way it's shown up in our modern life is best explained through the record of the Roberts Court. Leading up to the overturning of the reigning monarch of Supreme Court cases, Roe v. Wade, obviously, 
The Supremes on the Roberts Court decided 80 cases with 5-4 votes, all of which were consistently along partisan lines. Many of these cases went unnoticed because they weren't all about, let's say, kitchen table issues, as they call them. You know, like who you have a constitutional right to not bake a cake for. But all these cases formed a pattern. These 80 cases were all about power. Power to the minority over the majority, particularly the rich minority. And they fell into four categories. The first is weakening of regulation and agencies, basically giving corporations the right to pollute. The second is the weakening of the civil jury, and we will get to why that's a big deal later. The third type of case were those that allowed unlimited dark money in politics, like Citizens United and other lesser-known cases of that type. And the fourth category of cases were about chipping away at voting rights to strengthen minority rule. Those 80 cases have gone a long way to enhancing the power and wealth of a very small minority of people, with the loss of voting rights acting as a sort of mileage booster on everything else. Later in the episode, I do want to address more on why these cases really are about kitchen table issues, so to speak. But first, we need to trace the scheme back to the beginning and explain how it works. Back to the beginning. Let's go back to 1971. Everyone's had it with Vietnam. The Pentagon Papers are the hottest thing on the summer reading list. Everyone is still obsessed with going to space. Richard Nixon is the president, and the Watergate Hotel had not yet had their good name sullied by him. And the drugs that people did at Woodstock had just recently cleared their systems. The conservative takeover of the court system can be traced back to this time, and in many ways was a response by corporate elites to the counterculture of this time. They were not a fan of the improvements in the social stature of minorities. They obviously did not like immigration. And they definitely did not like having to work alongside Jewish people in finance and government. If you've seen School Ties, you know. Come on, David, David, come on, it's not worth it, David. It's not worth it, all right? One could say that rich white men were under attack like they'd never been before. And in reaction to that, we saw the emergence of groups Well, I didn't see shit. I wasn't here. They saw the emergence of groups like the John Birch Society and the Libertarian Party, which in 1980 ran on a platform of ending Medicare, Social Security, closing the post office, stopping public education, and eliminating all regulatory agencies, including the FAA. So like any semblance of societal interdependence. And I will note that there are actually Republicans who are seriously advocating for some of these things still today like Rick Scott and Betsy DeVos, but we don't have to go there right now. That's because we're doing story time. Jeremiah was a bullfrog! In 1971, yes, we are still in that year, a corporate lawyer named Lewis Powell, who later became Supreme Court Justice Lewis Powell, sorry for the spoiler, he was a VIP in conservative circles. That year, he wrote a secret super strategy document called The Attack on American Free Enterprise System, which spelled out his concerns that American business was under threat from evil people like consumer advocates and those who dared question the validity of trickle-down economics. His recommendations from this report were to, quote, end compromise and appeasement, which he positioned as necessary for the survival of business, and he called for corporate America to pool their influence and money to create propaganda in favor of corporations. They also called for things like monitoring textbooks and media. So you're not that original, Ron DeSantis so that they could make sure that the image of corporate America was painted as they wanted. This guy, Lewis Powell, Justice Lewis Powell, foresaw this as a decades-long fight that would require building political capital aggressively, even more so than they had done in the past. 
like back when there was an actual middle class. Powell presented this report to the U.S. Chamber of Commerce in 1971. And as his major proposed solution, audio highlighter here, he specifically called for going after an area of vast opportunity to exploit judicial action with an activist-minded Supreme Court. That is a direct quote. So then, fast forward five whole months. Richard Nixon nominated Lewis Powell to the Supreme Court, and he was confirmed. Without going into too much detail about his time there, while Powell was on the court, he wrote in three key decisions that ultimately laid the groundwork for the fuckery we have now. The things he ruled on eventually allowed unlimited spending to come into elections from special interest groups. Through his rulings, it was also established that corporations had the right to participate in elections, as long as, at the time, it was not in the form of direct campaign contributions. Eventually, this led to Citizens United. And he also made room for nonprofits to make campaign contributions in his rulings. So basically, once Powell got on the court, he laid all the groundwork to make all the plans that he had written about in that report, except he was going to make them legal. And the ultimate goal of that was to consolidate power and money amongst a small handful of businesses and individuals, perhaps even just two individual brothers. They were done with this hippie shit. We are in the 80s now. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, that greed, for lack of a better word, is good. One thing I was curious to get the senator's take on was the motivations behind court capture. The origins of the idea feel so corporate, although the most publicly salient decisions seem religiously motivated. Namely, things like abortion, contraception, and same-sex marriage, obviously. So I wanted to know if he thought this was more about money or religion. I would say that in the area of religion, the court has moved to uh, defend the views of people who have religious opposition to modern values. And that has been the big uh, push. So whether you're uh, a baker who refuses to sell cakes to uh, gay people, that's now a right the Supreme Court protects. If you're a coach who wants to have public uh, prayer with your team in the middle of the field uh, at a high school football game, uh, you know, that's now your right and there's a consistent theme of the use of um, religious um, opinion or sentiment or uh, principle uh, against um, things that are going on in society. And it has an inevitable sort of backward drift um, into times past. But, and I think there's probably an element of that that is alive and well, you know, beating within the heart of the court. But I think the real push is financial. The real push is about trying to degrade the government's ability to regulate private industry, uh, about trying to degrade government's ability to interfere with the ability to uh, pollute for free. Um, And the really dangerous cases are the ones that change the ground rules for the future that the public might not even notice uh, because they don't touch immediately on a personal right, like the right to go and get married to the person whom you love um, and buy a cake from whoever is selling good cakes in interstate commerce. Um, 
you know, that, that really hits people where they live, creating the um, beginning of a constitutional right to dark money kind of got by everybody, uh, creating a new doctrine that allows um, big industries to litigate regulations if, it, if it's a big regulation. Um, that kind of slipped by people because it's just changing the ground rules and creating an apparatus and a structure whereby big corporate interests can get away with more and government constraint on them is less. Um, and you kind of don't notice until the public safety problem happens big time, but you're looking back maybe two or three decisions to where it all began. Not to put words in the senator's mouth, but it sounds like the evangelical and profitability aspects just happen to dovetail nicely with the more religiously minded cases getting a bit more PR because they're more emotional, but that this plan is really about capturing the court over decades in order to chip away at corporate rules that would benefit literally everybody for the sake of like a thousand very rich people. You could probably fit everybody who mattered in that equation onto a city bus. It was not a very big group, obviously, because it's secret. It's very hard to tell. But when you're talking about a, an operation that has been calculated at this point to have cost at least $580 million, you're probably talking about a handful of extremely, extremely wealthy people, corporate interests, uh, or big um, right-wing foundations that screen for them. Which brings me to perhaps the biggest benefactors and funders of the scheme, the Koch brothers. The Koch brothers can be credited with corralling the interests of the far right over the past several decades. They gave the conservative movement a new cohesive deregulatory purpose and obviously the funding to do something about it. The thing about the Kochs is that they have hundreds of billions of dollars to their name. With that money tied up in pretty much any industry known for the destruction of the planet, the amount of money that they have should be some indication of the scale of the damage that they're capable of doing, and also how serious their interest is in continuing to do it no matter the consequences. You don't get that rich by giving a shit about anyone else. So I asked Senator Whitehouse what industries are benefiting the most outside of fossil fuels and firearms, the obvious ones. Well, those are the big ones. Um, but anybody who doesn't like regulation is winning. So um, any regulated groups like you know banks and insurance companies and so forth uh, have been given new methods to fend off government regulation. Uh, but the big one by far, I believe, is the fossil fuel industry. And it wouldn't surprise me if most of this whole performance had the fossil fuel industry behind it. The International Monetary Fund has calculated the annual subsidy for fossil fuel in the United States of America at 660 billion, billion with a B, billion dollars. So if you're protecting that kind of a protective subsidy around your product uh, and you're doing so politically uh, to spend a couple of billion dollars to do that is a very, very lucrative investment. So the Koch brothers have amassed their fortune in various industries, and that is largely thanks to their strategy of corrupting the regulation agencies that were supposed to be regulating them, mastering the art of what Senator Whitehouse calls it regulatory capture, which was sort of like a pregame for court capture. I would say that people trying to understand this need to have two ideas in mind. One is uh, what's called regulatory capture or agency capture, 
which is a well-known phenomenon whereby, for instance, the railroads take over the railroad commission that sets their freight rates and they run it for their own benefit, uh, more or less from behind the scenes through uh, friendly members that they've appointed to the railroad commission. That's been on go- going in America for a long, long time. And you have to think of what happened to the court as the version of that. We had court capture instead of agency capture, but the model is the same. We are about to go down the full court capture rabbit hole in a second, but I mentioned that these issues are actually the real kitchen table issues. So I want to give a peek into what we as regular people stand to lose to regulatory capture and also to court capture. So here's a clip explaining that from episode 15 of the Scheme series. Let's go back to what the right-wing corporate-funded propaganda machine likes to deride as the administrative state, their little code word. What has really gone on in these agencies? I'll tell you what's gone on over nonstop quarreling by big special interests, regulatory agencies made life better. They made drinking water safer. They cleaned up smokestacks. They put airbags in cars and required better seat belts. They protected us from contaminated food. They made medication safer and more effective. No more snake oil mysteries. They made financial markets safer places for retirement funds and college saving plans to grow. They made it harder for stock jobbers to sucker innocent investors. They required insurance companies to actually pay when insured risk occurs. They put an end to people dying from disasters like boiler explosions that used to be a regular thing. Americans live longer. Highways are no longer carnage. Products are safer, markets are stronger, and the American economy is more robust. So whenever you hear the phrase administrative state, it should ring in your head a little alarm bell that special interest mischief is afoot. So that is what regulation has done for you lately. I also mentioned the civil jury earlier and how it is supposed to provide recourse for regular people against businesses that do them harm. I asked Senator Whitehouse to clarify why that is so important as well. The effect on the average person of disabling the civil jury is to weaken their standing uh, in our society. Um, Because if you think about it, if you're just an ordinary individual and you try to get a meeting with the governor or the president up against a big, persistent, wealthy special interest, uh, you've got an uphill battle in front of you, let alone to get your position adopted, just getting in the room is an uphill battle. If you go to the state legislature or the U.S. Congress, um, you can walk the halls by yourself, knocking on doors, but huge lobbyists who have enormous amounts of access and are often previous congressional staff and have um, massive organizations like the U.S. Chamber of Commerce behind them are up against you and you really don't have much of a shot. All of that changes in a courtroom where they can lawyer up all they want, but they still have to tell the truth. Uh, They still have to undergo deposition. They still have to turn over requested documents. 
and they still have to face a jury that they're not allowed to try to influence. In fact, if they try to influence the jury, it's called jury tampering, and it's an actual crime. So it is a forum for the public to have a even shot, or at least as close to an even shot as you can get against big and powerful special interests. And that's not new. That's been a recognized feature of the civil jury all the way back to the uh, writings of, of Blackstone, his great commentaries around uh, before the uh, revolution. What the Supreme Court has done is opened up enormous power to big corporations to create um, contracts and other agreements with their customers and uh, even suppliers where you can't sue them. Right. And you're directed instead into mandatory and often confidential arbitration um, with arbitrators who they come before every time and have a significant role in choosing, uh, whereas the individual customer, let's say, uh, comes in as just an individual who has no history and didn't choose these people. And um, studies show that uh, people do very, very badly against corporations in arbitration compared to in state or federal uh, courtrooms. Personally, for someone whom the movie Aaron Brockovich was formative, this seems like the exact kind of thing that made that whole movie possible. Well, that's bullshit. We got PG&E by the balls. PG&E Hinkley by the balls. But nobody's going to get rich unless we can pin this on PG&E corporate in San Francisco. So we agree. Regulatory capture is great for businesses, but a problem for regular people. So once the Koch brothers and those on that city bus with them had figured out how to make regulatory agencies their bitch, they basically were like, let's try this with the courts. We have a lot of money to throw around and no taxes to pay. Thus began the era of court capture in earnest, though the groundwork had already been laid by the decisions of Justice Lewis Powell, whose goals were already very aligned with the Koch brothers, or really anyone looking to increase profits by making themselves completely unaccountable to the government or legal system. The capturing of the court to get the current 6-3 majority and the overturning of Roe took over five decades and over $500 million. And they did it by setting up what Senator Whitehouse describes as a covert operation. This is a really important cabal, for want of a better word. Uh, It's a very important apparatus. And if Leonard Leo wasn't running it, somebody else would. And the second thing you have to have in mind as you think about how they accomplished that from hiding is the tradecraft that intelligence services use when they're performing covert operations in other countries, setting up front groups, having shell corporations, uh, having people who purport to be one thing, but are in fact not uh, having people who are quietly working for you without uh, letting on. Um, The whole apparatus through which one country would deploy its intelligence forces into another country to try to disrupt and degrade the society um, that they're attacking through this covert operation uh, is really quite precisely the technology that, uh, in my view, the fossil fuel industry has deployed uh, in and against their own country in order to achieve political advantage. When you look closely, he definitely has a point. The operation involves dozens of organizations by so many names, which I'm going to get into now. We, of course, have to talk about the Federalist Society first. They are the big name in court capture. And while they are definitely vilified by the left, they are appropriately structured to provide a veil of legitimacy for their whole operation. 
That's because the Federalist Society takes a few forms. First, the Federalist Society exists as an organization with chapters at law schools. And that's where they function as sort of a debate club, where people can play devil's advocate in a safe space. And there they also function as kind of an intellectual pipeline. Second, they're also a think tank and a fundraising organization that hosts events and conferences and galas, the usual DC shit. And third, and most dangerously, the Federal Society is an incubator for a pipeline and a turnstile of conservative judges. Specifically, those conservative judges whose particular brand of conservatism is aligned precisely with the Federal Society's brand of conservatism. And as a reward for sticking to that, judges can hope to see their careers thrive with ever more desirable judgeships and appointments. It definitely took me a few days to figure out what this reminds me of, and now I realize it is Scientology. One could imagine one of those scenes where people are auditioning on stage for a role in a play, and there's a group of people sitting back in the audience deciding uh, whose audition was successful and who they would choose. The theater in which that took place was the Federalist Society. We don't know who got led in the room to do the choosing, uh, but clearly dark money was the ticket to entry. And clearly there was a lot of auditioning done by judges who then got selected. This third pillar serving as the turnstile for judges is the problematic one. And it was largely shaped by conservative operator Leonard Leo, who has been working on this project since 1991. Leo was the longtime vice president of the Federalist Society and has been responsible for ushering the nominations of every conservative Supreme Court justice from Clarence Thomas through Amy Coney Barrett. In 2019, the Washington Post published an expose on the extent of Leo's personal control over conservative court nominations. He has been spending decades building a network and talent pipeline of judges who are willing to decide cases aligned with the interests of the Federalist Society, which again is essentially just an intellectual shield for deregulation, limiting voting rights, rolling back civil rights, all the hits. Here's what Senator Whitehouse had to say about Leonard Leo and his centrality to the operation. I think his output is to coordinate the big donor interests that have this huge dark money capability and um, orchestrate their alignment into specific uh, policy goals or into specific Uh, nominees. And um, he has multiple, multiple hats. So it's a little bit hard to tell. Um, He has roles in some of these front groups. He has roles in the suite of what are called CRC companies, CRC strategies, CRC public relations, CRC advisors that are the means by which uh, he extracts funding for himself out of these front group entities by selling them his services. He was uh, an employee of the Federalist Society, um, and it's uh, it's a little hard to pin down exactly which would be his primary role. He's he's not uh, the executive director or executive vice president of the Federalist Society any longer. He's now on its board. During the Trump administration, Leo advised Trump directly, and 86% of the judges that Trump appointed to the federal bench were federal society members. The administration even openly acknowledged that they had outsourced their judicial nominee search to the Federalist Society. For this president, who was bizarre in a lot of different fashions, to hand over to a dark money private interest group the ability to create lists for him 
and I contend also choose the ultimate nominees, um, was bizarre, uh, but not illegal. Right, right. Indeed, I'd say so bizarre that if you looked around the world, uh, you couldn't find a single country in which anything like this takes place. And if somebody did in some other country, um, the American judiciary and legal system would scoff at them uh, having done so, uh, obviously amenable to corruption, a process. All of this should have been pretty clear before Trump was even in office, because part of his courting of conservative support from people who at first doubted that he would be right for the Republican nomination, for reasons I cannot imagine, was that he pre-released a list of Federalist Society-approved judges who he would nominate to the Supreme Court if he were president. And that pretty much sold people. The administration effectively promised that Trump's judicial nominee process would be synonymous with the breakdown of the administrative state. You know, those pesky government workers who want to make sure your water is drinkable. How dare they? Here's a clip from episode 16 of Senator Whitehouse's Netflix documentary, where he's explaining that. From day one, Trump's top advisor, Steve Bannon, vowed that the Trump administration would carry out the deconstruction of the administrative state. Trump's White House counsel, Don McGahn, the same Don McGahn who oversaw the confirmation of the scheme's handpicked justices, admitted this. I'm quoting him here. The judicial selection and the deregulation effort are really the flip side of the same coin. Think about that. In his own words, the Trump White House had a, quote, larger plan to wipe out government regulations using judges. Next, we have to talk about some of the other shady organizations that work alongside the Federalist Society to influence the court system. These are the various arms of the covert operation, and they each go by a number of different names. So prepare to be confused. That is actually kind of the whole point. Let's start with the money, which makes it all go round. The best things in life are free, but you can give them to the birds and bees. I want money. The communal deposit box for anonymous donations for court capture is an organization called Donors Trust, or the Donors Capital Fund. They've been dubbed the right wing's dark money ATM by people other than me. It's actually on their Wikipedia page. For the fact that they take a massive number of anonymous donations and disperse them amongst various conservative and libertarian organizations. Here's how Senator Whitehouse describes the operations of Donors Trust. Some of the more persistent ones, like Donors Trust, has uh, staff that manage the transfer of funds. With the Donors Trust, uh, operation is is a great big right-wing identity laundering operation so that if you're a big donor and you want to make a big contribution to a political uh, campaign um, indirectly of course through an independent expenditure or a super PAC or if you want to fund a climate denial group without people knowing who you are or if you want to engage in the court capture stuff without people knowing what business you have before the court you then go to Donors Trust and you indicate to them where you'd like the money to go. And they turn around and send the money to the uh, appropriate location. And it arrives in the reporting of the receiving group as a, a gift from Donors Trust, which tells nobody anything. Another big name is the Judicial Crisis Network, which was formerly known as the Judicial Confirmation Network and is technically registered with the IRS as the Concord Fund. Don't ask. 
whatever they want to call themselves, they take massive amounts of anonymous dark money. And their big role in this whole thing is running advertisements for and against judicial nominees. The Judicial Crisis Network has been recorded to have received single checks as large as $17 million in order to fund ad campaigns for nominees that were selected by the Federalist Society. So there we have at least one person who is very, very wealthy and very desperate to own some judges. Then we have the Honest Elections Project. When you hear that name, think voter suppression. They're actually a rebrand of something called the Judicial Education Project, which is sort of a corporate sibling, if you will, of the Judicial Crisis Network. But that is just their Insta bio. They're the voter suppression arm of the operation, which is now conveniently run by Leonard Leo, who has taken his talents elsewhere after he was outed in that Washington Post article I mentioned earlier. And to complete this ecosystem, there is the faux academic arm, which is responsible for posturing their interests into legal recommendations that can be passed off as legitimate, so that judges can then use them in their legal rulings. The big names in right-wing faux scholarship are the Free State Foundation, the Cato Institute, and the American Enterprise Institute. These are the think tanks that write the literature justifying their dark money interests, which the justices, they just got confirmed through the Federalist Society pipeline, paid for by advertising through the Judicial Crisis Network, can cite as justification in their legal opinions. So it's like if flat earthers were in charge of Google Maps and then were getting paid per person who fell off the edge. The thing with these organizations is that they're all functionally just masks worn by the same individuals to achieve their goals at various stages of the judicial process. Here's how Senator Whitehouse describes their overlap. I think it's a combination of having lots of shells to hide various P's under and add complexity that makes it hard for the press and the public to trace. Um, I think it's also partly um, ease of deployment If, for instance, you have eight front groups operating out of the same address with the same staff, um, with the same funders and uh, the same director, then depending on what the issue of the day is, you dial up the appropriate front group and you use that as your vehicle. Um, But it's very easy to manage all of that centrally without a lot of overhead. I believe there are some front groups that have no actual staff at all. They're just a corporate shell that uh, human beings can deploy when they choose to use it. Um, But there's no real office to go to. In fact, some of them are mail drops. Now we have to talk about the Koch's organization specifically, the Americans for Prosperity Foundation, which I am mentioning in a special category because they had an extremely important case before the Supreme Court last year. The ruling of this case was extremely important in its own right, but this whole thing really demonstrates how the ecosystem functions, even before their case was before the court. In 2020, before they brought this case before the court, the Americans for Prosperity Foundation openly supported Amy Coney Barrett's nomination. They even spent money to get her confirmed, and now she was a justice ruling on their case without recusing herself. Anyway, in 2021, the Americans for Prosperity Foundation won a huge victory after they sued to prevent the state of California from getting access to donor information of nonprofits like itself. They obviously want to keep their donors secret because that is the whole point of dark money and allows this whole scheme to keep going. The decision in this case, which obviously Barrett came down on their side of, made it officially constitutional for nonprofits to keep their donors anonymous, which is the best possible tool that anonymous donors could anonymously pay for. In this case, they codified their scheme, literally. 
thanks to the justice whose nomination they supported politically and financially so that they could legally continue to perpetuate this cycle. So we have covered the massive inflows of money, what these anonymous donors are paying for, the right to pollute the planet, and the web of overlapping organizations that work in cahoots to create a pipeline of agreeable judges. You would think that with these judges securely in place, they'd maybe just let them do their thing. But no. The dark money scheme shows up in the courtroom too, using an esoteric tactic called amicus curiae briefs. Unfortunately, I embarrassingly mispronounced that while interviewing the senator, which I am still trying to put behind me. But amicus curiae means friends of the court and refers to individuals or organizations who submit briefs containing advice, expertise, or other information in reference to a particular issue or ruling. The ACLU is an example of an organization that would submit an amicus brief. I am just going to avoid the C word from now on. Of course, though, dark money had to corrupt the concept of an amicus brief, too, by figuring out a way to weaponize them. Knowing who funded the organization that filed the brief and that may actually have funded the brief itself would be one really important telltale. But the way the rule about disclosure is uh, allowed to be read by the Supreme Court is that if nobody paid specifically for the printing, binding, and delivery to other parties of the brief, then you don't need to disclose it. And since that costs ten or $20,000 at most, you know, most of these groups have that just sitting around in cash on hand so that they don't have to solicit the money for that, so they don't have to report any funding behind their brief. And yet many of these are groups that essentially have no personnel, have uh, no real function other than to uh, be the screen through which briefs are delivered. Um, and I think it sends a signal to the judges on the court, not only of what they want them to do, um, but also of the importance to them. So in cases that are pretty important to them, they'll send them a flotilla of about a dozen. In a case that is really, really, really important to them, like the Americans for Prosperity Foundation case that uh, created the beginning of a constitutional right to dark money, that got 50 of these front group briefs at the stage where the court decides whether or not to take the case before they're even arguing the merits of the case. 50. So that was more than a flotilla. That was an armada. And it sent a really powerful signal to the judges from the Federal Society process that this is a really big deal for us here. Pay attention. Uh, we're here in a huge crowd to send the signal that this matter is big. Senator Whitehouse refers to these swarms of dark money funded organizations as flotillas. They're composed partly of shell organizations and faux think tanks which in reality are essentially understaffed groups that go by a bunch of random names working to legalize their own interests and signal to the justices how they should rule. I asked Senator Whitehouse why the judges, who are already Federalist Society bred, can't just figure out how they should rule and why they need these flotillas of amicus briefs to tell them how to rule. You know, this stuff can be complicated. And, um, you know, you may have gotten on the court because you were rock solid on the Chevron doctrine, or you might have gotten on the court because you had uh, shown your chops in terms of uh, supporting the NRA at uh, all costs, or you may have shown off that you were a great advocate for uh, dark money and thought it was a wonderful thing. And um, however your audition went, 
um, there's a larger script. And I think they just want to make sure that all six, all five before Barrett and now all six of the judges understand exactly what the script is, even if it's not their particular area of expertise. They get the little array of briefs all singing in chorus together. So they sort of function like a highway sign beckoning the judges to their desired fascist exit. Okay, I will not allow this to end on such a bleak note, so let's talk about solutions. As a solution, Senator Whitehouse has sponsored the Disclose Act in the Senate, which has been co-sponsored by all 49 other Democratic senators who are in office right now. But they cannot get a vote on it for reasons that I'm sure you can guess. In the simplest terms, the bill would require organizations that spend in federal elections and judicial nominations to disclose their donors. It would require organizations to state when they are behind political advertising, prohibit U.S. corporations who have significant foreign control, ownership, or direction from spending money in elections, and require super PACs and 501c4s to disclose donors who spend over $10,000 during an election cycle. Aside from that legislation, though, Senator Whitehouse has some other suggestions, as well as some thoughts on court expansion. I think court expansion likely would be effective. I worry that if we press that remedy before we've really shown the American people what the disease is, we will be unsuccessful in pursuing that remedy. I think you have to do these things in stages. I come to this as a lawyer. Before you ask a court for extraordinary relief, you have to make your case to the court. I think we need to make our case to the court of public opinion uh, before we settle on exactly what the remedies will be. There are some things that the court itself could do right now. They could clean up the mess of dark money uh, amicus briefs that come in and orchestrated flotillas and tell them what to do and have an astonishing success rate with the uh, Fed stock justices. Um, They could clean up their own gift rules so that they are reporting more like the executive and legislative branches do uh, when they're invited to receive hospitality um, from various figures uh, to whom they are not related. Um, And they could be a lot more discreet about letting cases come rushing up to them without being properly prepared if it's a case that politically uh, the big donors want them to take. This episode is running a bit long, so for the rest of my time with Senator Whitehouse, I asked him some pressing questions about Brett Kavanaugh and Jenny Thomas. And rather than leave you hanging on those, we've included them as part of the Betches Sub podcast that will be out Monday, October 3rd. It's October 3rd. So be sure to tune in there and get his take on those two hot messes. I'm Sammy Sage, and now you know what the fuck is really going on. Batches.